I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Join me today as I talk to Chris and Megan Zillman from Denver, Colorado. Listen as they share how they are converted as a dating couple straight out of the world, their view of dating guidelines, how they built healthy campus ministries in the 2020s, what their objectives are for leading the 30-plus-year-old church in Denver, how to raise a family of five and enjoy the ministry at the same time, And finally, what Chris was talking about in his lesson at the ILC in Orlando. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the content, please support the Rob Skinner Podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Rob Skinner. That's patreon.com forward slash Rob Skinner. Thank you. It's been an amazing (laughs) past three or four weeks being on campus at the University of Arizona nearly every day, reaching out to hundreds and thousands of people along with some great, great people, uh, both students and workers on campus, getting into Bible studies. We've got a big retreat up in Flagstaff this weekend where uh, churches from Phoenix and Flagstaff were gathering here and Tucson going up there bringing our friends for a really impacting time. Kyle Plum, who preached, uh, who's going to preach, and who did a podcast interview with me a few episodes ago is going to be laying out. And we are so excited here in Tucson to be going up there to hear him because we know God is going to change lives through the preaching of the word. So that's going to be awesome. But I'm also excited because today on my program, I've got Chris and Megan Zillman. Chris and Megan lead the church in Denver, Colorado. That church has been around a long time, late 80s. I'm, I'm going to guess probably 88, 89, something like that. I think it was started by Marty Marty Wooten. And anyway, they've, they've started leading that church, and I'm really excited about talking to them for a number of different reasons. One is they are absolute family people. And one of the most common questions that I get on the Rob Skinner podcast cast is, how do I do ministry and raise a family? Well, I don't think there's anyone better to talk to than a family who's doing a great job in the ministry and has five kids. <laughs> that's that's a challenge. I haven't heard anything like that since Dave and Judy Weger, who had five kids. <laughs> but uh, they've got five kids, and they're doing an amazing job. Also, I'm really interested in talking a little bit about Chris's recent lesson at the ILC. I thought that was very intriguing and brought up a lot of questions in my mind. But it's going to be a great, great talk. Hope you're doing well as you go into this fall. I hope you're focused on making disciples and that you feel like you're giving your absolute best to making this life count. Chris and Megan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We both enjoyed the Generation X intro. That's when it came on. I was like, that's Gen X. Little grunge intro there. Is that you? All all power 
power chords. Oh man, I just it's thank you for I wish that were me playing that. <laughs> I, I, but I mean that's the type of music I love. Just power chords all the way. Grew up on on uh, classic rock, and I mean that's just it. The Who and oh my gosh, uh, I I won't say any more bands to you know. But anyway. Now I just listen to Christian music. Okay. <laughs> Can I interject and say, maybe I shouldn't say this, but this is the first thing you need to know about us. Okay. We don't listen to Christian music. Okay. All right. I'll no. think. It's a confession. It's a confession. Except at church. We, we listen at church. We worship at church. Of yeah. course. Of course. That's, that's good to know. Well, how'd you guys become Christians? Um, I'm going to let Megan, Megan became a Christian first. I'm going to let her, her answer and that's it's my my story's uh intimately tied to hers yes he, he well yeah so we we actually went to high school together so we were dating um we were best friends at, at a certain point i my, i had a boyfriend who was close friends with chris and he had a girlfriend who was one of my best friends so the four of us hung out all together and then when those two went away to college they both broke our hearts. So we were left to pick up the, the broken pieces together. <laughs> so we had been dating for maybe a year, year and a half. And I went to college. I grew up in a little farm town in Indiana. And so grew up going to church, grew up, um, you know, being taught and believing that the Bible was God's word, that Jesus is who we said. So I'm super, super grateful for how I was raised. And um, my mom in particular did, did so much work to try to instill uh, faith in my sister and I. But I went to an extremely liberal woman's college in Massachusetts called Smith. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember going to see my pastor before I left, like, okay, should I, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? I, it was the first time I was going to be outside of a, of an environment that where everybody thought like I did. And, and people were, as a matter of fact, they were hostile to that kind of thinking. So I don't remember what he said, but I remember praying, God, help me find a group of Christian friends. So first week on campus, wouldn't you know it? Someone runs up after me, invites me to church. I wasn't looking for a different church, um, but I asked, do you guys do Bible studies? And, you know, here, here we are 20, 27 years later. Um, I was amazed because I saw women my age that weren't, didn't just believe that Jesus is, you know, God's son and don't drink and don't smoke and don't have sex, but we're actually striving to live like you saw in the Bible. So it was convicting. It was a, it was a wrestle for me though, because at a cost account. I knew um, if he was not on board with this, you know, I knew my, my young faith wasn't going to be strong enough. I would have absolutely turned back. So that was kind of my side. I make a phone call. Hey, good news. <laughs> Jesus. And then I'll, I'll let him pick up from there from, from what you felt when you got that phone call. And so I, I was living, I'm a year older than Megan. So I was in my sophomore year of college at Indiana University. So we're a thousand miles apart while a lot of this is is happening. And Which I just needed to happen like yeah, that. Thank you, that God. Was, that was God <laughs> right there. Um, now, I did not grow up religious. We went to high school together at a religious school because I was, um, I'd grown up public schools my whole life, but I, I would, I kind of fell in with not not the best kids in the world and my parents were getting worried so they took me out of public school and put me into this private school and this is where that's where we met and uh, became very close and then started dating and I went away to college first so I was in the middle I was in my sophomore year and she was deciding between Indiana University and Smith and then she went to Smith and you know she got met on campus like the first week that she was there but I didn't really I didn't really understand what was happening like when she first said that she was going to a Christian group I was just like 
yeah, okay. I mean, it's not, it's better than a sorority. Right. And so right. And I wasn't religious. Like I, even though I was in this religious school and I, I did have an honest, I would say I would have, I had a very honest relationship with God. I didn't pretend to be something I wasn't. I felt like at the best, I felt like the Bible might be true, but Christianity doesn't exist today. Mm. You know, you know, at least not, not what I understand about the Bible. And then she started studying the Bible in earnest over the course of a month and a half, but it really wasn't until the last week of her studying the Bible where I was clued into what was actually happening here. Um, I think when she told me that our relationship was going to have to change, um, that's where, that's where things became very serious for me. And, uh, you know, and to, you know, to Megan's credit, she was willing to put our relationship on the line. I mean, essentially she was communicating, you know, if this is, and if this isn't something you want to do, then this isn't our, we don't, our relationship really doesn't have a future. And so I studied the Bible against my desires. Like I was basically under duress, you know, studying the Bible in the beginning, but you know, I, I was, I was definitely, I loved the the Bible study part because it was honest, hmm. you know, it was very, it was practical and it was honest. And that, that very much spoke to me. I, I would say I had more of a revolutionary spirit. Like I wanted to free Northern Ireland from the oppression of the UK <laughs> when I was in college. You know I mean? So when we started studying the Bible and you start seeing Christians putting their lives on the line, and that was an expectation for anybody who wanted to follow Jesus. I was like, Oh, so this is real. Like that what we're talking about is people really doing this. And I was surrounded by, for the first time by people who not only believed it, but who I saw living their life that way. Yeah. And it was a culture shock for me. I played in the college band at the time. I had long hair, you know, Chris, all the Christians were not people I would ordinarily hang out with. As a matter of fact, my campus ministry was essentially like eight black women, the campus minister and myself, you know? <laughs> and so that was, that was the campus ministry I came into in the beginning. But anyway, she got baptized on a Wednesday night. I started studying the Bible on a Friday night and then I got baptized the following Friday. So I studied the Bible for for seven days, and I felt like I'd probably lived about three lifetimes in those seven, <laughs> seven days of misery. That was back when we just had email had just started, oh my and gosh. I have some of those letters of like the. Uh, it was not a fun time. So <laughs> you you were at Indiana State, Indiana University, Indiana University. Okay. In Bloomington. In Bloomington. Okay. Part of the Indianapolis Church. Okay, and so there was a campus ministry there at the time. Yeah. Okay. And so you're like one of the few guys, few guys there. Yeah, it was me. And there was one other guy. He actually happened to play in the NFL, but I think he was not living much like a disciple at the moment I was studying the Bible. So, <laughs> Right. Okay. So that's a f school famous for basketball, right? Bobby Knight. Is that the yeah. same one we're talking He's about? Okay. Yeah, Bobby Knight was still there when I got baptized. Okay. I'm actually studying the Bible with a guy from Bloomington, Illinois right now. Oh, you are? Okay. Yes. Yeah. But, but are, are you talking about Bloomington? Indiana. Indiana. Okay. Okay. Indiana. Different state. Sorry about that. So, okay. And so I was in the process of transferring out. I got baptized in, in, in October and January, beginning of January, I was already on my way out to Massachusetts because I was transferring schools. Okay. But you can't go to Smith because that's a women's college. So what'd you decide to do? University of Massachusetts. In Amherst? Yep. Yes. Which Very is, good. they're close to each other, right? Can yes. They're actually part of a consortium of schools. So. Okay. Okay. So you went to Amherst and then tell us what happened from there. Like, how'd you guys get into the ministry? T talk a little bit about your track. Like, what'd you guys do? You guys ended up ministry. How? Um, well, Tom Franz was the evangelist there and he was amazing. He was a great preacher. And so and immediately just watching him 
do what he was doing, it, you know, you start to feel an, an ambition to do something similar. But Chip and Ruby Mitchell were our campus ministers. Mm -hmm. And so, and they were some of the best trainers of young people that I, I've ever seen. And mm -hmm. so they just, in, in unbelievable joy, got yes. you to desire to yes. do to do more. Kevin Miller was my roommate. Oh you know what I mean? And so, you know, but, but we had such great friends on that campus ministry. That campus ministry did some did some great things all, with all five of those schools right in the area. And so just being a part of that group, you, you wanted, you wanted to do it for your life. It sounds like a hotbed was, was Glenn Petruzzi involved in that mix? He was in New Hampshire. So, but we were friends. Like he would, yeah. he would come down in my graduating class. I had, I think eight people in my graduating class and six of them went in the full-time ministry. It's crazy how you can get those kind of strange cohorts of people that are really passionate. It was the same when, when I went to school at UC Berkeley. I mean, it seemed, it seemed like to me, everyone wanted to go into ministry. Of course it wasn't the reality, but it just felt yeah. like it. It's like, Hey, you going to, where, where are you going? It's not if, but where, where yes. are you going to go? So, okay. Well, that was, it was, it was, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say when I, when I studied the Bible, I felt like I had spiritual blinders lifted. Mm. Like I'd grown up reading the Bible but it was, it, it, all of a sudden it came to life. Yep. And again, there's a spirit of this, this really is what the world needs. This mm. is like that we were so passionate, right? Mm. And we believe, we all believe that this is, this is God's call. This is God's, and so it, it, it is, it's funny. I remember I played basketball and I remember one time I, right after I got baptized, I was dribbling the ball up the court. And I had this thought, I'm like, what am I doing right now? This doesn't matter. Mm. None of these women know that Jesus died for, you know, I just, but there was that, that feeling of well, what else would I, what else would I do? You know, right. and now obviously there's many other things that I could have done. And we believe very much in people ministering in their jobs and in their careers and in their fields. But I just think God put it on our heart and the soil was rich for us to, to believe like, this is a great way to spend well, your life. And during that time, New England is sending out church plantings mm -hmm. to Europe and Eastern Europe. Every, every six months. Every, well, maybe even sometimes more than that. And so we applied for probably eight or nine mission teams while we were in college. Uh, <laughs> I mean, time. we never got accepted, but uh, that's actually one of the reasons why we got in the ministry because we kind of caught the eye of Randy McKean while we're, what, we keep showing up at these mission meetings and putting our hat in the ring as like juniors and seniors in college, <laughs> willing to drop out of college to go on the mission field. And so it was just a very inspiring time. But to be fair, I think also we wanted to, to drop out of college, go on the mission field so we could get married too. It right. feels like that was a faster track for us, but right. you know, yeah. I think we knew if we went on the mission field, other motivations. They, yeah, I think if they, they, they put, they sent us on the mission field, they'd want us to get married first. And so that was probably part of the motivation too. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. How did you guys recalibrate your relationship to, to fit more of a spiritual mode? I mean, prior to that, you know, yeah worldly dating that you get in, you get in, you both become Christians, but then all of a sudden it's like, okay, everything's changed. How did you make that transition? It was tortured. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was, it was, it was really difficult. I mean, it, it, if there was ever a time where I may have walked away, it would have been during that, during that time. Yeah. Like I think if both of us had been in a bad spot at the same time, you know, it would have been, it would have been tempting, but we got so much, you know, during that time, there was so much, what people would call rigidity today in the dating culture to me saved, saved us. Wisdom. Right. Like we, mm -hmm. we, we needed, needed the wisdom. We didn't have it. Yeah. We weren't kingdom kids. So we coming out of the world, we had, I had instinctual 
like barbarity on my right. mind. Right. <laughs> you sure. know, like I could, I would very easily go left when I should be going right. And so the, the number of people involved in our dating relationship and the, and the input that was, that was strong, but it was, it was well thought out. And, you know, like we, and we submitted to that. We, we submitted to it. And I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the Mitchells and for all the people that were involved in our dating relationship easy early on, but it wasn't easy. Like it was, it was hard, but as, as our friendship, as my friendships deepened in the kingdom, as I became like very close to Kevin Miller and John Hare and Christian Smith and Michael Kadinsky and these other people, you know, I felt like the kind of the the emotional entanglement that we had developed began to loosen and started, those needs started to get met by these men, by these unbelievable friends of mine. Yeah. And, but that took, you know, that, that was a, that was a year. It was pain. So <laughs> the thing that I always tell women today, um, the fact that he used the word, he submitted to the, not, to, not only did we just ask people, Hey, what do you think? Or I'm right. thinking about doing this. Right neither of us liked the advice mm -hmm. right it was it was painful because we were having to pull apart our relationship was not where it should have been we had to pull apart so it was pain and it was angst and it was a lot of i had to wrestle with god which i'm grateful for mm -hmm. that pain taught me it was foundational to helping me learn how to wrestle with god with honesty um but he not only did he ask for the input and look but he used the word he submitted to it mm -hmm. he submitted himself to godly men that he could look at and trust and was the things that they said every time would if we didn't do that would it have broken us no but it developed a pattern right. of submitting himself submitting ourselves to the godly men and women that were in our lives and it brought such security 20 we just we just celebrated 24 years of of marriage and i tell that to women now i have a secure i'm so secure with him right because he continues that pattern that he set of submitting himself mm. and our relationship and entrusting it to God through listening to the counsel of godly men, it it created a foundation of security for me that continues now because he still does it. Because we've, I mean, twenty four years, right? There's right. We've it, had it, some disagreements. It, it reminds me of something that you shared at that ILC lesson in Orlando. You t you talked about how Megan got some advice from not Marsha Lamb, who was it? Her daughter, Christy Lamb. Christy Lamb. Okay, can you just kind of recap that real quick? that was very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think the, I mean, the advice, what I was speaking to specifically there was putting the relationship on the line when we were studying the Bible, like she, that there had to be a willingness as we understand when we study the Bible to give up all things. Yeah. And this was the tangible thing, the immediate tangible thing that was, that was obvious because no one knew what I was going to do. Like those, everyone in Massachusetts, they didn't know me. I didn't know them. They had no idea what kind of wild card I I was in this whole scenario. Mm -hmm. And, you know, good. Yeah, I, well, I was just going to say, she, I remember her saying, give him a month, Megan. After a month, you're going to be able to see where he is. Is he trying? Does he, is he, is he setting his, his, I'm going to strive to be this? Or is he going to be indifferent? You'll be able to tell. But that that having to cost that count that cost again, I grew up so religious. I didn't understand really what it meant to to count the cost, to sacrifice, to put. And I needed it again. It was foundational, not just for our relationship. It was foundational to my relationship with God. It made it real to me that, oh. I do have to give up everything. Mm. I do have to be willing right. to put to put behind. So 
I'm super grateful. And again, it made a lot of, it made it much easier that he was a thousand miles away. Sure. <laughs> and I, sure. And I, and I don't think at all, like our situation fits every situation, nor do I think that the advice that we are given necessarily is, 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 can be universally held, right. you know, by everybody. But I, I do think that that was a spiritual moment. Yeah. And I felt like when I look back, I needed strong people being strong with me because yes. I was, <laughs> I was a maniac. You know what I mean? Like I right. needed, I needed people who are willing to be that strong with me and, and make and have the type of risk of me walking away. Yes. And that changed my life. Yep. Well, there's certainly a, a move away from any kind of involvement in dating advice, spiritual dating, spiritual guidelines, spiritual input. There's a rejection of anything that could be construed as rigid or um, old school, old, old school, anything like that. What would you say to, to a person who's really wrestling with that and going, you know, do I really need, do, do I need this? Or, you know, that maybe that's just too controlling. Yeah. I think my, I think my first input, I mean, my first questions with that always is, are the people that you're talking to spiritual? Mm. Like, are these, are these Christians, are these disciples, do they right. have the Holy Spirit? And, right. and if all those things are yes, then you can't do anything but consider what they're saying mm -hmm. as being spiritual itself. Right. You know, like you have to, you always have to consider that what comes out of the mouth of another Christian could be the will of God. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, rather than look at the, uh, at the advice in a vacuum, I think you have to look at it within a spiritual context, you know, and, and it's, it's different if you've got six people saying this thing and six people saying this other right. thing, you've right. got multiple spiritual people telling you the same thing. It's just folly not yeah. to, not to, not to see that this has got to be a spiritual force mm. that's put, that's pushing you. I, it's, it's also, I think of um, folly is the word I think of too, because what are you trying, what are you trying to build? Mm -hmm. I think the question always gets asked, well, this is not sin. We want to distill it down to sin or not sin. There's a passage where I, my brain left me. So I, I <laughs> don't, I, wherever it is, it's in the Bible. I know it's, it's in the Bible. I think Paul is talking to Timothy, but he talks, he tells him, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, right. love, integrity. I can't remember exactly, but I think sometimes when we're talking about dating and how do you build, all we focus on is the, the, the flee, the evil desire. So, well, I'm not sleeping with them. So people right. will at least draw in, draw these lines and boxes. Right. But, but we don't always focus on that. So how do I pursue right. these things? How do I pursue wisdom in here? How do I pursue purity again, which I know is like a, a buzzword, but it's, it's a good God word. How do we pursue these things rather than just avoid? And I think, again, sometimes in these discussion, it gets distilled down to can I, or can I, and other than that, I don't know, people put garden and well, I'm sure that will come up more as we talk through, cause that's one of our main tenants in our discipleship. If we live guarded, we're in trouble in right. any area. Right. If I'm trying to protect myself. He who builds like a high gate invites destruction. Right. You know? what, what's interesting about the, the time that we got the advice that we got, I, there would have been many places where the advice simply would have been for her to break up with me. Mm -hmm. Like, like that, that was the time frame that we were living in. And it, when I look back, I, I don't look back at, at that advice being rigid. I look at that as being, it was, it was a, they, these people were willing to be flexible right. given the time that, that we were, that we were living in. I, so I don't think that that's not a part of this. Yeah. I think every relationship is different. Every situation is different. And, and those who are making decisions and giving input, they can't, I, I don't think they can be rigid. I think that they have to be willing to, to consider, to consider multiple 
avenues of, right. of solution and stuff like that. Um, but that, that, that's when you're talking about the people who are giving the advice. Your, your question is when you're receiving the advice, how, how you should look mm-hmm. at it. And that's, that's more of what we're answering to. Right. Right. When I was, uh, just had just graduated from Berkeley, I was dating a woman and I was really crazy in love with this girl and she was just, you know, beautiful and was in love with her. And I was just about to ask her to marry me. And I started doing bad spiritually. And I remember, you know, talking to people and they're like, you know, you should probably break up until you get back stronger spiritually. And I'm like, Oh man, but I knew they were right. And so I did, yeah. even though it was difficult. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to shape up my spiritual life. And then I'm going to get back with her. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? After I started doing better spiritually, my feelings had changed for her. Yeah. It, it, she was still a great person, still awesome, hadn't changed, still beautiful. But my, my feelings had changed. And like a year later, I met Pam. And yeah. I'm just like, that was awesome advice. You know, just yeah. she was awesome, but not the one for me that God had a different plan, but it would, it was at the time I thought I'm never going to meet anyone like her again. Yeah. You know, I, I thought yeah. I'm never going to feel that way again. She was the one yeah. anyway, I don't want to yeah. go off to my story. So, okay. Thank you for sharing that. Now you guys, how'd you guys, what was your first step into ministry and where have you been since you got hired the first time? And I think probably after, for me, after being a disciple for three or four months, I, my mind, there's something flipped on. I was like, this is what I want to do. Right. And so everything that I did from that point on was bent on trying to get into the ministry, you know, applying for the mission teams, applying for every internship possible. Um, and I made my desires known to, to just about everybody that, you know, I wanted to go in the ministry. And so I, you know, I went to ministry straight out of college, although I, I, that wasn't a for sure thing. Um, I was working for John Hancock my whole last year of college because Megan and I wanted to get married and I needed to have a secure (laughs) job lined up. And so I was working for John Hancock. I got my series six and all that stuff. And then, um, Randy McKean had told me not to take the job and that he would find me a place in the ministry. And that was, that was, you know, I, I graduated in May. I went to ministry two weeks before I graduated and I got married two weeks after I got, after I graduated. Wow. Good month. It and was. that was in, um, well, now it's called the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ. It was the Springfield Church of Christ back then in Massachusetts. Yeah, oh. 1998. Yep. And wow. so, and then, and then, you know, we were in Springfield for six months, but, but the plan, I guess, you know, looking back, I go now, I, I think we realize now the plan was always for us, for Randy to take us out of Springfield and put us into Boston. And so he brought us, the Millers and the Petruzzi's. Now, the Millers and the Petruzzi's weren't married yet. They were just all dating. But he brought all of us into Boston to kind of reboot the Boston uh, campus ministries. Meanwhile, Megan is traveling back and forth to school in the Pioneer Valley. So, you know, two or three times a week, she's driving 90 miles to go to her classes while she's finishing up her senior year of school. And that's kind of where we, that was our first real time, you know, time of length in the ministry was in Boston. So we were in Boston for all four or five years, had our first son, moved back to the Pioneer Valley, and we're in a ministry there again for another couple of years. Then we ended up, by at that point, we had our two sons and we're Midwesterners. So we felt a pull to get back, to be near our families and that our kids knew grandma and grandpa. So we were um, for a year, but in order to make that move, 
we had to step out of the ministry because the church where at home was Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Dana and Jen Perkins were, were leading the church there. And it was a group of, I don't know, 35, 40. We can't, they don't need two ministry couples. So we had to count the cost. And we came out of the ministry for about a year and a half, which was very hard. It was a sad choice for us to make. But um, again, it's one of those things you look back on and you see how God helped us to grow up some. And we always joke that that was the time that we learned oh, this is why people are late to midweek sometimes. <laughs> like you, you, know, you have other job. And and um, so we were there only for a year and a half, got a call from Chicago. Would we be interested in um, going to Chicago? And again, kind of working with the campus ministries there. This was 2005. So we ended up there. And then we were in Chicago for the next almost 15 years, 15 years. about 15 years till we moved to Denver in 2019. So at this point, we've been in three families of churches. We've, we've, uh, the conference was so much fun because all of those decades and all of those families and churches, you, you walk down that hall at the, at the summit and you see, you know, yeah. you see people from all of those places. And that's when you realize, oh, God, this church is so worth fighting for. Right? I know it. I know it. Okay. So you were in Boston. When did you leave Boston? Was it two, was it because of 2003? Was there like cut well, back some staffing or something? 2002 when we left. Well, no, 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 He's talking about when we moved back to the Midwest. You know? Yes, oh, okay. right. Yeah, it, yeah. the letter had something to do with it because we weren't, we weren't looking to step out of the ministry. Um, this is a longer story, but su- suffice it to say, 2003 really disrupted a lot in sure. the Midwest. Right. And um, going into the ministry there, it just, it, it didn't, it didn't feel right at the time. Like it, 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 everything was so unstable and I've got two little kids. And so I just decided we, you know, we decided that we go back to Fort Wayne, our hometown and, you know, I'll get my master's degree. We'll, you know, maybe we'll just make a lot of money and put ourselves back in the ministry in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right. you know? And so right. You know, we, we hadn't did. gotten to the make a lot of money part. Yeah, was, we went down happen. to one salary, but yeah. boy, oh boy, we learned about frug- frugality. Yeah, frugality. Frugality. Thank you. We learned about frugality <laughs> in that year and a half. Yeah. And then, um, but we, and it was fun because our families were there yeah, and so fun. You know, it's kind of a dream come true to be living life with your families again. And when Chicago called, I kind of kept it secret for a little while because I was like, you can't be calling me. I, my wife cannot know that <laughs> I'm even thinking about this. Yeah. But then, old. yeah. But then, you know, we ended up we ended up going um, back in the ministry in Chicago, leading a small church to Calb with a campus. It's a campus ministry town. That's where. Uh, uh, yeah, Northern Illinois University, where already Fuquay started, and so. Okay. Now, at did at start a church there in DeKalb, or is that some someplace different? No, that's. A, he was in Columbus. They they started yeah. a church in Columbus, Columbus Ohio. Okay, yeah. got it. Okay. Yep. Marty Fuquay started DeKalb. Okay. My Midwest uh, geography is a little shaky. I'm mostly from the West Coast. Okay, that's so my yeah. West Coast geography shaky. So it's. it's <laughs> Okay, so you're in Fort Wayne, then you moved to Chicago, were there for 15 years. And I just want to back up just a little bit. I go, Randy McKean must have had an amazing eye for talent because he pulled in four of the most influential people like in one swoop. Mm. Uh, you guys, and then Glenn and Kevin Miller, I go, wow, I want that kind of eye for talent. That's a, like a Danny Ainge kind of move right there to like <laughs> spot that talent. And he just packed the team. Well, and you know, talent's an interesting word to describe uh, those those guys, at least, because we were a mess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we were the most talented at all, but we were. Gr- I mean, 
we were yeah we were passionate and we were grinders and mm -hmm. and on top of that like we were we were really good with one another i think that yeah, we spoke the truth yeah we spoke the truth in love we were able to fight and still be super close and not hold grudges and it was competitive but it was also there was so much like a uh, charity and grace and love shown to one it was a very sweet time yeah in the, in the ministry. Mm. And so I think, I think we made, I, I don't know that we were super talented. I think together we helped each other be more than we would have had we been on our own. Well, and then we had incredible trainers, teachers and trainers and the Mitchells and, and the McKeans, the Shaws were a part of it. Just, and I think we learned that ministry again, it's not, here's how you do it here. We, we, we got so much of the nuts and bolts, you know, we were given, so we, we had the, the benefit of exceptional training in that way yeah. but really what what i remember from that time is just living life i remember spending all the time with the mitchells and spending time at the mckeens and like so they we, we saw ministry was relational we right. saw ministry is about connection is about just living life together with people so so much of the i think even maybe they saw something raw there in in terms of desire passion you know some amount of ability but i just think then they they dumped so much water, fertilizer, however right. you want, by the way that they, they, they allowed us to know them and they wanted to know us. And mm. they taught us to speak our minds. They taught us to speak our minds with grace. I mean, there were, there's just so many stories of, of being in their homes, Valder Koha, the Shaws, the Tranchills, the Baythons, the, these, these couples were so instrumental in, teaching us how to be passionate, but also how to live with one another. Yeah. And, you know, they're just, it, it really was, we were, I'm so grateful to Boston and everything that they poured into us and those families yes. uh, and, and others as well were, were just amazing to us. I want to Our Christianity has been that we've been poured. People have been incredible. Our experience has been one of great love. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, up until the time in Denver, I'd always placed you guys in a campus ministry context. I think you, weren't you like the the, the czar of campus ministries in, in the world or something like that? <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, we uh, we we served as chairman for six years. Okay, so you guys, I mean that if the, if I had a question about campus ministries, like I better call Chris Hillman or you know people would say, hey, you need to talk to Chris about that. What's your philosophy for building a strong campus ministry? Now, this is not just theoretical. Um, we're in the process of rebuilding campus ministry here at the University of Arizona, and it's certainly taken a hit after COVID. Numbers have gone down. Um, we're trying to build strong. We're trying to build in the wake of a lot of cultural upheaval, both inside and out. G give, give, give me your philosophy. Like, if you, you know, if you're building, what, what advice would you give to to people like me and others who are trying to build a strong, healthy campus ministry in the 2020s yeah. well it's a it's a good i think part of what you're asking is it's the 2020s since we've been in campus ministry it feels like the generational cohorts get smaller and the way that you have to deal with each of those you know you, you can't carry a philosophy for years at a time anymore like mm -hmm. you, you have to be able to to kind of transition with the way people are coming into the ministry. Like I, right now I can, I can only imagine having a, a COVID, you know, cohort coming through college who went through two years of what they went through in remote learning and so many of the things that happened, it's just, it's just different. But 
you know, I think some of the timeless, if we were to talk about like timeless principles, you know, I would, you know, I think, I, you know, Chip Mitchell, one of the biggest things that he discipled me on is actually loving these students for where they're at, yeah. not, and not being frustrated for where they're not at. Like they, they have to believe that you, that you do care about them. And so the idea of your house being an open place for people to come and go and that, that the campus ministry isn't just an engine to drive growth, but it is, it is a family and um, it's a place to make mistakes. It's a place where transformation happens over the course of four years. Um, But it's, it's a place where you can set high expectations where you can teach characteristics like zeal and enthusiasm and expectations and accountability, but you can do it within the context of so much fun right. you know, it's, right. and experience and memory making and risk taking and all the dumb things that you just want your college students to do. <laughs> so they leave the campus ministry with just a, an arsenal of stories of the things that they and their friends did in the campus ministry. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's some of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and creating a culture too, I think, especially like when we came in, we, we had no ties to this church. My only tie was, well, they sat down and showed me the scriptures, the, the, the blinders were lifted and this is the way I want to live. And they're the ones that are teaching me how to do it. But my ties were so tenuous. My tie to God was, was tenuous. So even very practically, I think as much as the campus can get around the other people in the church, the marriage, the, the, I mean, we were, we babysat constantly, you know, I mean, I was, I wasn't even a week out of the water. And I remember I was at the Kingan's house watching their three kids. I'd never met them or their family. There was a sister and I were, were in there. Um, but that was the, that was the beginning. How many meals did we share? We were dating, right? So how many dates did we go on with the, the older couples? And so, so much of what we, how do people say you, you catch things, right? So much of what we caught was just by being integrated into the rest of the church, um, which you have to be intentional about because these students are in their world and the, the the older people are in their world. But I think that's one of the big one of the big things. Um, us as campus ministers, we had the benefit of being right there by on campus. So, like he said, our our house, we would take our kids on campus. We, we just try. It was how do you create family, right? Mm-hmm. And then also, I think the trying to help these students fix their eyes on Jesus, explaining the whys to them, because it's not enough. I don't know if it ever really was enough, but it's certainly not enough now to just tell people, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this. So helping them understand the whys, you know, why are we saying, let's get out and share our faith? Why are we saying, you guys, boundaries are a good thing in dating. Mm. Why are we saying it's good for us to be around one another in the felt? Like really teaching in, in such an intentional way, teaching them how to think, because they're not going to peak in there. I mean, the goal isn't to just have a great campus student for four years. The goal is really those years are foundational, right? right? Even if they were right. converted there or they're coming in from the teens, campus years are, are foundational to people's faith. What do I want to put into the foundations? And it's, it's, it's slow. It's long suffering. It's messy. It's, but allowing campus to, sometimes the temptation can be, we just have to push, push, push. Mm. And while we're pushing, let's actually, again, sometimes the students are going to be, they're going to be messes. Our, you know, we've experienced with, with ourselves, with our own kids, they right. come in and, and where they are prevents us from being able to go where we want to go, mm-hmm. but being, it's okay. Cause this is the ministry is stopping and sitting with, with these young men and women. Um, 
and teaching them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And I think especially today, you know, we didn't we didn't have to deal with in, in UMass Amherst. We had some of the first kingdom kids come into our campus ministry. Yeah. You know, like those, the, there weren't kingdom kids when I got there was nobody who right. grew up in the church right. when I first got into our campus ministry. No, Bethany, Bethany Jones, Bethany. Smith. Yeah, there just were very few. Um, and when the when these new kingdom kids first started coming in, like we all thought these guys are going to be like amazing. Like they're going to be sharing their faith. Right. Like they've been sharing their faith already for years. And years. <laughs> they grew up in family, you know what I mean? And <laughs> when they came in, it was different. We were brutal. Like we were yeah. so brutal, right. you know, to those kids. And, um, and so now our campus ministries are made up pretty much most of the time, at least 50% of, of kingdom kids. And there's a difference between the way that they see the church and the way that Gentile conversions see the church. And I can tell you that, while the kingdom kids have so much that's built into them, they, they bring with them into the campus ministry boatloads of innate health that they don't even know they have. They just mm. do things that are healthy without having to teach them. Right. Whereas, you know, you're like trying to make sure that your your Gentile conversions don't get into a fist fight with a visitor, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Um, but the reality is that the gratitude that the that the Gentile conversions have right. on the kingdom kids, like they that is a profound like chemical interaction right. that has got to happen. Like you've right. got to have a lot of conversions happening so that kids who grow up in the church begin to see the church from their eyes as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a, that's a huge learning lesson right now that our campus ministries are experiencing because it's very easy to look at all of the, all of the, the issues that kingdom kids are dealing with, with growing up in the church, which are profound. Like they're the, those, they, they are having to go through things that I never had to as someone coming in from the world. And so they're, they're finding their identity. They are trying to figure out exactly what they do and do not believe they are, there is exposure to things that maybe they've been overly sheltered from. And now, and they're dealing with all of that um, when they're coming in and there is a temptation to pivot everything that we're doing to minister to that. And we can't ignore it and we have to minister to it, but one of the biggest things they need is for yeah. people coming in from the world to see trans to see yeah. some lives transformed right. yeah. and to right. see the gratitude and the passion that comes about from seeing those lives transformed. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, some of it puts into perspective some of what kingdom kids grew up with, but that, I don't know, that that's some of what I, I think we would say, you know, within a two minute, five, you know, three minute answer. <laughs> that's super, super helpful. Building family, creating family, getting your kids to fix, fix their eyes on Jesus. I love the idea. You really are building a foundation, not just for the campus ministry, but really for their future. Cause you think about how college kids, they become so influential if they're, especially if they're converted yeah. during the college years. I mean, they just carry with them convictions that changes the next 40 years. It's, it's totally awesome. Different. I mean, yes. absolutely. Yep. And then, um, you know, just loving them from, for where they're at. And yeah. at the same time, over over four years, transforming. I think that kind of long-term mentality is super, super important rather than just like, hey, you need to baptize two by next week and, you know, yeah. get yeah. get into the production mode. That's that's super helpful. What You guys took over the Denver church a couple years ago, three years ago? How long has it been? Three? But it doesn't count quite as three because it, <laughs> it was three COVID years, okay? Okay. Like a year and a half ago. So you're... in deeply involved in campus ministry for a long time, working with AT there in Chicago. What's it like leading a church 
of 30 plus years. I think it's probably 33 years, right? Wasn't it planned in 89 or 88? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, you said you weren't going to put us the, on the spot. The, the dates are contested. I will say that. Okay. <laughs> That's true. Older. Yeah. So what's it like coming into Denver or what's it like leaving Chicago? Yeah. I mean, okay. It, yeah. It's a big shift. I mean, you're, yeah. you're part of a staff for a long time, most yes. of your career or all of your career. All of a sudden, you're the point person. Mm-hmm. You've got an entrenched church that's been there a long time. A lot of culture developed. I mean, there's a lot of deep-seated culture and habits that go into that. It's, that's not an easy job. And it's a, it's a pretty big church, what, five, 600 people or something like that? Close to 800, yeah. Okay. So... Um, what, what, what was what was your plan? Did you have did you have a plan coming in? Prayer and nah, fasting. It's funny. I, I think I think it's I think actually it can be harmful to come in with this well developed plan to a church that you don't know with okay. people that you don't know. Um, I think originally the our thinking this, this comes from Chicago to be honest. Our experience in Chicago because mm-hmm. we loved we really loved the Chicago church. Yeah. We didn't we didn't have a huge desire to leave at all. I think this was part of God making sure that you're still willing to go anywhere and do anything mm-hmm. is you get these callings that you still have to be willing to do. And, but our time in Chicago, what we saw get built from the time that we, we, we got there in 2005 and 2005 is only two years removed from it was a little a, rocky. It was like, it was chaos in some ways. Not you, a lot of trust. At yeah. That point. You had, a, you had a staff that was beleaguered and you had personalities that were entrenched in, you know, long conflicts that just were not getting resolved. And you had the underlying conversation that was taking place, despite what was being said up front, all of that was Chicago when we first got there, although the people there were great. It was just, it was tough. And you just saw over the period of those 15 years, trust get built, not only in Chicago, but in the Midwest Mm -hmm. in general. And it became such a fun place to, to, to be in the ministry, to live life. It's, and it has all the conflicts of a big city and a big church and you never get away from that stuff never goes away, but I don't care how healthy the leadership is. That stuff's going to be there. But man, you just felt like you were doing ministry with best friends, with family. Mistakes were going to happen. Mistakes were going to be addressed, but it wasn't penal. It was, it was just, it was great. Like we just loved, we loved the trustworthy atmosphere that Chicago had built. And so I think in coming to Denver, can I say something before you pivot yeah, to yeah. Denver? I do like AT and Marcy Arneson were masterful at creating a team because mm-hmm. they lead the Chicago church, but I'll tell you what, they created a team and they allowed everybody to weigh in. Well, let me not say it, eh, eh, but I don't, they just, they were able to, to, to set things up in a way where you felt valued and you felt like what you were trying to do mattered. Um, so again, over the course of the 15 years and the eldership and, and, and Chicago is amazing. The st- you do, It was so relational. So again, if you do something relationally, it's going to go slower, right? It might not be the numbers that are just skyrocketing. You're like, wow, look at Chicago. But it's such a healthy environment was created because it was so relational. And so that's kind of been, sorry, you pick it up. That's, that's then where we pivot to Denver. And even one of the reasons I think we felt maybe we can offer this piece to mm-hmm. Denver of what we've seen relationally be created in, in Chicago in the Midwest. So we, we came in going, I think our first step is to let, let, let's create a high trust environment in, in this church and in the staff, between the eldership and the staff, between the membership and the leadership and between members. Um, th- that became primarily what, what we began focusing on. 
Yeah. And so I think, you know, that and, you know, from an evangelistic perspective, I think, I think we, we couch all of that in the idea of being a good neighbor. And, and so those two things, like building trust, be a good neighbor, were, were the, were the messages from the beginning that we, that were kind of our mantra. And even I'm pivoting back again to your original question. What's it, what's it, what's it like to lead a 30 year old church? The Denver church is amazing. It's so, I always say this to people. It's so resource rich and all, I, I mean, in, in, in spiritual gifts in maturity and in, 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 you know, financial resources and time. It's we have 10, just we have 10 elders, 10 elders, 10 uh, elders and their wives that are just such solid, mature Christians that influence, we can, we can look to them and, and we can follow their example as they're following the example of Christ. And so there's, there's so much about that, that it's just, it's such a rich, rich church in that way. Um, we have members that were evangelists for 25 years yes. and now they're, now they're leading, you know, they're presidents of companies and they're starting businesses and they're, you know, they're, it's, it's just, it's amazing. The, the, the level and the caliber of character. Yeah. And, and members that have just been, again, you've got a 30 year old church. We've got members that have been, you know, fighting the good fight for 40 years, 50 years, just entrenched. And so it's a gift and it's a blessing and the challenges it's, it's, it's way more easier when my kids were two, it's way more easier to, to shape and mold and influence than now our oldest is 20. It's a different. And so there are things that develop over the years where, you know, we just, you, we get entrenched in our culture. So that's the, the, the flip side of it is, okay, there's certain things that we're, we're all looking at and we're all as a church trying to put our arms together and let's, let's, let's reshape this culture. Let's rethink some of these things. But when it's that old and it's that, you know, and it's, and it's big, it takes some time to, how do you, how do you shape it all? How well, do you reshape? Yeah. And you come in and you're not the most influential person. Yeah. Like you land in a church like this that has that caliber of human beings that have been disciples for that long, just because you're just because someone gave you a job doesn't make you influential at all. You know, you have to earn the respect of, you know, and that's part of it. I mean, I've been, that's what we have to do. That is the task that we have is, you know, you have people that are willing to follow for a certain period of time because you're the, you know, you're, you're the leader, but over time you, you have to, you have to actually, these people have to actually respect you. They have to actually want to follow you and to listen to you and, and to trust you. And, and with the group like this, that's as talented as it is, that that's a bigger job than walking into a campus ministry with like 19 year olds and 22 year olds. Right. Okay. You know? so, so let's, let's drill down a little bit because building trust, being a good neighbor, that's a little broad to me. Okay. So how, how did you build trust? You've got a very strong, experienced, um, seasoned, elders and staff. You've got a lot of people that have been, I mean, literally hundreds of years represented as Christians in that group, plus people that aren't on staff that are been around for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what'd you do? What'd you do to build trust? What'd you do to be a good neighbor? I think first, I mean, this is going to be basic. You got to spend time with people. So for us coming in, that was our goal. We're just going to, we're going to sit down and we're going to spend time with people and we can't live life with 800 members. Right. How, how can we have as many touches as we can with, with 800 members, but who are the people that we, we, so a consistent 
like with our with our staff with our eldership we we absolutely try to have a consistent let's live life together we're, we we're, we're meeting all the time we're connecting we're talking that's a, an obvious thing but then conversations like so some sometimes just things need to come up people need to feel safe to express things need to to be said that nobody wants to say nobody wants to hear but when it's down there that has to happen i think Chris does a very good job at, I don't know, emceeing isn't the word I want to say, but he does a good job of setting a stage so that people can feel like they have a place to, to talk, that the ugly ugly thoughts that none of us are proud of, but we feel like that that, that stuff can get out there. And then even some of those things are, they, they are relational. This person hurt this person and this person hurt this person. And those have to be talked about. Those have to be. So I think a big part of it practically is, trying to facilitate these conversations that need to be had actually being had over and over and over as long as it needs to happen so that was one of the big i feel like for the first two years that was a big piece of what it looked like practically well i think too like you you have to categorize where you're doing this stuff so you're building trust in the staff that's one place where, where, where you do that. You're building trust with the eldership. That's one place you're doing that. You're doing, you're building trust from a small group leader to the people in their group. And so you, you have a task with building trust that, that happens in different categories. And so, you know, for instance, like with the staff, I mean, and the staff is a joy, you know, like, but I will say this, my probably personality or my brand of, of, of leadership, um, probably wasn't comfortable in the beginning, you know, like we, I would say that we bring to the table, what, what we can bring to the table is a ton of irreverence, a ton <laughs> of mockery and uh, a back and forth interaction. That's and, how you build relationship in the Midwest. Yeah. And so coming into the staff, it, you know, building trust looked like, okay, everybody's just got to let your guards down. You know, when we come to staff meeting, we want there to be a ton of laughter we want everyone to get more used to speaking your mind and they're not being penalty for doing that. Right. And, and so th that's in the staff, that's how you build trust in, in, in the eldership. You do that in a different way as you're with the small group leaders and you're helping them build trust with their, with their membership, you're doing that in a certain way. And so you're categorizing the skill sets of building trust in these different, in these different, um, uh, arenas. And so when we say build trust, obviously we're speaking from a, a general perspective, but then moving forward and how you do that, you're doing that differently in these different arenas. Okay. Same thing with being a good neighbor. Obviously, when you talk about being a good neighbor with married people, you're giving practical input about, you know, how about you know your neighbors? How about you have them like, let's have a plan for having everybody in your neighborhood over for dinner. Let's get go into the school the system. Meetings. Yeah, go to the PTO, <laughs> become a coach. Like make your household the central house on the street, you know, but then when you're talking about it with, uh, you know, teenagers, now you're talking about, hey, get to know the person who sit next to you in class, you know, and so it carry again, it's the same thing, you're carrying over the message to these different arenas, and you're giving slightly different practical input on, on how you do it. But the overall, you know, picture in the end, right, is, is, is a church where when people walk in, they're not seeing a show. You know, like they're not seeing something that feels spun. They're feeling they're seeing relationships that 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 have that have history and that that are are happening in real time. And that you know where there is genuine affection that 
that looks authentic and feels authentic. When you come into a room, you can tell when that that group is comfortable with one another and when it's not. And so we're trying to make we're trying to make it so that when people come into any room where there's disciples, man, it it's a fun, high trust, authentic, candid, faithful, you know, spiritual environment. All mm-hmm. of that, you know. And so anyway, that, that's what that's what we were shooting for here in the beginning. One of the things that that stood out to me. I think uh, we visited Denver and we just had um, a little bit of time together, Chris, is your willingness to speak directly to people. And you mentioned this earlier in this conversation. And there's something that stood out to me as I talked to AT is there's a, a seeming fearlessness in talking about stuff that's uncomfortable, confronting difficult situations and tackling situations that maybe other people would avoid. Um, you know, I may think about your situation. Okay, you've got a lot of really experienced people, people that have been in the ministry a lot longer than you, people with a long resume of spiritual achievement. And yet you you seem more than willing, almost eager to to be able to confront in an honest way. Can you talk about how you develop that skill? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think he practiced on me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he got it, Megan. Maybe he got it from you. <laughs> um, you know, obviously in the world, I, I was, I was mean with this, mm-hmm. you know, coming into the kingdom, you have to learn how to be kind with this, you know? And so I, I came into the church. What I would say is that being a truth teller has always been a high priority for me. And, but I don't, I've never, I've never always been super comfortable with, how to do it. And so, you know, there's, there's stages of, of my own growth and how to be, a tr- I mean, I was around chip and, you know, chip will say whatever, whenever, you know, <laughs> so that was, so whomever. yeah, that was super inspiring <laughs> to me. But I remember one thing that chip said to me is like, uh, if you make it weird, it's going to be weird, you know? And so, <laughs> and so the, the idea of being comfortable saying what you have to say in your own voice, in your own words is really imperative to, to conflict, you know, not, not saying things the way that someone else would say them, not saying things, uh, not trying to be someone else, but, but telling the truth in your own voice and from your own perspective, did you want to, well, I was going to say, but what, and he's taught me so much about this over the years. Cause I'm a, I am a people pleaser. Let's have peace. But the, the flip side of it is not only does he speak truth to everything that he just said, but I feel like what I see in him and what I've learned in him is then he's willing to be humble. He's willing to say, if someone comes back and says, you were wrong or this was not right, he owns it. I'm sorry. Like, so, so that's the flip side. He doesn't just like go around speaking truth and confronting things as he sees them, but he, he, he really does sit in a seat of humility and say, and he's open. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, and which is, a huge part of it. And then I help, I think it helps people be able to receive it. Then if you know that the person talking to you also recognizes themselves as a flawed human being <laughs> who needs to be talked to at points. I mean, that's the flip side of, of all of this is that, you know, that we live within a community where everyone has to forgive you. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so uh, taking risks about being wrong and saying something, everyone's going to forgive you in the end. Right. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to be, and you have to be okay being like being wrong, I guess. Okay, so you came in. The church was eight hundred when you walked into it. What What are your goals for the church? Like that church has been there a long time. I would guess it's probably been around that size for a couple decades. What 
what do you do? Like what, what, what kind of target do you set? Well, first it's not been that size for a couple of decades. I, I would say that uh, the church has grown substantially in the last 10 years. Okay. And so before I got there, they, they went through a lot of growth before, before I was there. And so um, I would say that side of things, they're used to seeing growth that they, they, they kind of understand the work that it takes to, to do that. And so in many ways, we we've inherited a group of people that value that, okay. and that, that, that care about that. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, Rob, when it comes to like growth goals, um, he, here's, here's the way that I would look at it. We need to not we need our church not to die out. Like we need to be here for generations to come. The, the idea is that we are going to be able to preach God word, God's word for generations. That's how I look at this. And so in order to do that, from my perspective, we've got to have a, a thriving youth and family ministry, campus ministry, and a young professional, the young professionals ministry. This is the point of people's lives where they are the most open to ideological change, to paradigm uh, alter, you know, alteration, to challenging what they're thinking. Um, so, so these ministries in particular have to be have to be growing. You know, the church will die if we do not have a huge infusion of youth constantly coming into the church. And so, for to me personally, like my goal is to have a very like a high growth campus ministry where we and a youth and family ministry where we are reaching families and where we where where teens and children are you know from from kids kingdom all the way up to the youth all the way up to the teen ministry the faith is being instilled upon them where they're either being converted there or later in the campus ministry or young professionals and then a young professionals ministry that is taking advantage of the fact that we're a growth city where a lot of young people are moving into right 90% of our growth comes from that i am i honestly i'm i'm content as long as long as our older ministry, our Mary's ministry, that they are supporters and they're cheerleaders for what's happening in the youth. And as long as they themselves are working hard at becoming anchors, absolute anchors within their community, like their neighborhood knows who they are. The teachers at the school know the family, the local business people know who you are over the period of of years. Mm -hmm. I believe that mentality of being a light in your community and knowing people serving there that you're going to have a different type of slower growth come from that as well. And so those two things are, if you're asking about goals, as far as like what we're trying to build, that would be it. When it's not what Chris just said, it's not super quantifiable, right? Which we have many discussions about. And even some of our, you know, our members ask, well, what, what's our, because we're in, oftentimes we're used to, to, to the quantifiable goals. So I think what we're really trying to build is something. What does the Denver Church of Christ feel like? What does it feel like when you're a part of it? What does it feel like when you're not a part of it? Come experience it. And that I, I would envision that's going to be another five, five years of developing. And so sometimes I say, I think that the Denver Church is getting maybe holistically healthier it starts to feel there's certain changes that you start to feel and that, that I notice being here, but it might be a while before anybody else looking at Denver from the outside says, Oh, look, Denver's Denver's growing as we, as we, as we talk about it. Do you know what I mean? It's a slow, we want to build relationally. Well, and whether it's slow or fast, we don't have a, 
you know, you, you have limited control over that. The one thing that we can control is sharing our faith for sure. Yeah. I want to have an evangelistic group. Yeah. You know, we, where we're setting goals for evangelism is normal. It's healthy. It's accepted. It's, there's a thrill to that idea. Um, we can control uh, knowing how to study the Bible with people and we can control engaging. engaging with people, you know, when people come to church and engaging in our environment, like trying our best to move people a step closer to whether that's coming to church, whether that's getting into the Bible or whether that's actually making Jesus the Lord of your life, that we're intentionally trying with our lives to, to move people in that, in that direction. That's always going to happen faster in the youth. And there's, that's, there's inspiration and beauty to that. And I think there's design to that, honestly, from a spiritual perspective. Right. right. Um, but I, I definitely, we need to be an evangelistic preaching the word uh, uh, church. People. And then what God does with that, you know, we're, we got to be ready to, we got to be ready to take hold of it. I've never heard someone set a goal for our church to not die out. <laughs> First time ever. <laughs> I like that, you know, just set that bar a little low and then move up from there. That's awesome. Um, but I hear what you're saying. You're saying you're focusing on the process. You want to have a strong youth culture and that that's going to be the fountain of your growth going forward. And you want to have a strong, healthy core while at the same time honoring and establishing the older members. So they feel like a part of it. They're both supporters as well as um, pillars of their community. And then, of course, from a staff perspective, like we we have goals, like we have dreams right. for where we want the church to go. And some of those dreams are numerical. But, I, you know, th- to me, those are not the things that we talk about always publicly with, with right. the membership. Sure. You know, that's that's not a burden that everybody has to carry. Right. OK, let's let's talk about that, because you've talked about building um, building trust, being a good neighbor, spending time with people. At the same time, you guys have a big family, okay? Five kids. I don't. I know know of just like one other couple that has five kids. That's a lot of kids. How do you make time for your family? And again, this is this is a big question that people have. Is like, how do you, if you want to have a family, how do you do ministry at the same time? We kicked two of them out of the house, so we're down to three. So oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, but I I would say ministry is. I mean, it, it's it's a blessing to have a large family, to have any family. The, the, the ministry is a, is a blessed, you, I feel so lucky to be in the ministry and have my family because so much of, as long as you don't try and compartmentalize ministry and, and family, when you look at it as something that overlaps, you know, every single day, it's, it's great. So like my son has a soccer game. Okay. I I get, I have the opportunity to create a schedule where I can go to that soccer game. However, I'm not just going to a soccer game. I'm going to an evangelistic event. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like this is going to be a time for me to get to know the other parents, for them to get to see what we're all about. Uh, You know, I bring, we'll bring our little kids there. They're my little kids. will get to know some other little kids there. And, you know, before you know it, there's another play date and that this is another family that we get to know. And so, you know, evangelism was a bit of a grind before we had kids. Once we had kids, evangelism became the most natural part of our lives. And so every time we go to the school, every time I walk my kids to school, this becomes an opportunity um, to be a fisher of men. Right. And so, and I think if you can look at ministry that way, is it, it, it's an overlap of family and responsibility. 
um, not only does ministry become more fun, but you, you start to notice all of the touch points you get with your family mm -hmm. because they're coming along with you for this adventure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing too, we're not, we try to be um, just unguarded in how, again, how we live as, how we live as people, as disciples, as ministers, as parents, as, you know, in our relationship, we want people to know us. We want people to know our family. And that comes with the good, the bad, the ugly. We don't, it can be a temptation, especially if you're a minister, to feel like you have to be the example and everything that you, like, you're, you have to have parenting figured out. Mm -hmm. You have to have marriage figured out. You have to have, um, but the reality is we, we won't. There's certain things that we do well and that we do, but, but I think what we can, what we can be the example in it is we will live unguarded and allow people to influence us. Mm. We're going to ask questions. We're going to open the door. We want people to share with us what they see about who we are, how we do family. Um, Todd and Cheryl Fink discipled us in, in Chicago for 12 years and forever. We're different because of them, because they, they knew our family. They watched us, you know, as we were parents, they, they knew our marriage, they knew our, our, our ministry, and they would advise us. They would show us, they would say, you guys probably need to correct some things over here or, or you're out of balance over here. So we had, again, we had spiritual men and women that we opened up our lives to and we entrusted who we were and we listened to what they said. And I think that helped us learn. Again, some of this is a bit, this is not super practical in terms of, and they told us this and we did that and they told us that, but and trusting that, I think God used them then to help us learn some of these, these balance pieces. Mm. Sometimes I get concerned because I can feel people, especially younger people maybe, are trying to protect themselves and their families, even ministers, almost from the church right. or from the right. from the commitment or from right. the, and I think we're, we're afraid, I get it, we don't want to repeat some of the mistakes of our past, but if I'm setting up boundaries out of fear, that's never going to be good. Right. Let me set up healthy boundaries out of love. But not out of fear. So even that, if if that's one of the things I would say to to young ministers, especially young moms, I talk to a lot of young moms because they get this this question: How do you do it? Examine and see the boundaries and the lines that you've drawn for yourself and for your family. Are you doing that out of fear? Or are you doing that out of faith? Because if they're faithful, great, God's going to do something. But if they're fearful, it, it, it's like the, the the Israelites coming out of out of Egypt, and you, your kids will pay. Right. for your lack of faith, right. you know, if we're, if we're driven by fear. And I say that as someone that is driven by fear. So I've had to get so much help over the years in this area. Hmm. That was kind of a rant. No, I, but no. Now <laughs> I think the, I think this idea that you're going to make mistakes and you've got to own them and you've got to be okay with that in front of your church. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, probably the, 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 the stories that people like best Yes. As I'm preaching, is the mistakes <laughs> that I make as a dad. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Or yeah. as a husband. Or, as, like or as a husband. There's like not as many too. of those. But um, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the idea of just being okay, like, hey, just because I'm a minister, I'm not I'm not perfect. And I'm going to I'm gonna be transparent and open about that. Yeah. And I'm gonna and listen, if you're in the ministry, you're getting you have the opportunity to get the best mentorship yes. and input. Right. about your marriage and about your, your, your kids protecting, you it, oh yeah, protecting you your, it. yeah, if you want it, if you're going to be, if you're going to be dead honest about it, if you're going to be really, if you're not going to version to everybody aspects of your life, but right. if you're going to be just fully transparent, 
you have the ability to get some of the most profoundly wise input mm. on a regular basis right. from people in your life. Right. But if you protect yourself, then you're going to get discipled in messed up ways because you're going to get discipled on the version you give to them, which may not be the truth. Exactly. I mean, that's one thing. I was so attracted to the ministry initially and still am is it gives you so much control over your time. I mean, you, yes. you, you're the boss of your own time. Yep. And of course, Jesus, you know, he's, he's the Lord, but it gives you the ability to work in with your kids. I think about Dave Wigger. I remember a class he taught decades ago and he said he'd, the afternoons when his boys would come home, he'd go out in the back, you know, in the driveway and play basketball. Yeah, yeah. And I just copied that. And when my, my boys had come home from Japanese school, we'd go out and play, <laughs> we'd go out and play baseball. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the blessing of, of the yes. ministry is like totally. your, your schedule is, it doesn't seem to end sometimes because it goes into the right. evening and it's, it's sure. hard, it's hard to kind of say it starts here and ends here, but the control, the ability to find time it's it's there i mean in abundance way more than people that have a high pressure job and they've got to commute from this time to that time absolutely it's huge and and if a person can really grab hold of that they'll run toward toward the ministry if they value their time and i certainly do and i bet you do as well let's let's shift gears here chris your your sermon at the ilc was was strongly worded i mean it, it was an interesting it was more of an address i'd call it an address not like a sermon because Interestingly, as I looked at it, it looked like you typed up, typed it up word for word, and it looked like you were reading a like a document, kind of like the you know Gettysburg Address or something like that. <laughs> Very interesting. It's just I like to study preachers, and I'd never heard you preach before, and so I'm like, well, that's really interesting. I've never seen a person do that. Um, I mean, your vocabulary, your you know, your writing skills definitely came out. Um, my only disappointment, and, and I shared this in the recap I did of the, the WDS, is I thought your slot was too short. I, you know, you have 35 minutes and you, you were kind enough to step down when they, when they asked you to, but I kind of wish you'd gone renegade and just said, hey, I need 10 more minutes. <laughs> because you were really building up this incredible like lesson talking about uh, stuff. And then I'm like, you just left me on a cliffhanger. I thought, okay, we need the sequel. We need part two here. <laughs> we, you know, hey, you know, it's, it's almost like wait for next season. You know, I'm like, no. Leave you one and more. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, don't get me wrong, great lesson. But who were you talking about? And what were the issues that you were addressing and that you're seeing in our churches? I'm, I'm just, I really want to know. And I told my listeners, I said, we're going to get Chris here and we're going to talk about this. So. I think there's a lot of people besides me that would like to know more about what you were talking about there. Sure. I think, um, well, thank you for the the kind words. First of all, I will say this is how I typically preach. I I do a ton of writing when I speak because I speak often from my notes. Um, And I like, I like saying things exactly the way that I want them to be stated. Mm -hmm. Um, So saying things the right way is important, you know, to me. Um, You know, we were doing the entire conference out of the book of Colossians. And um, I, it, what's interesting is that everybody was given a topic and a sermon title, except for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the end, they wanted me to ch- just to choose something and um, which is a nerve wracking thing in its own way, because then everything that you say is completely from your own. <laughs> <laughs> you have to own it. I'm completely responsible for why, what was said was said in that, in that moment. Um, 
Megan and I were talking earlier today and, and she kind of, you said something like speaking towards patterns, yeah. not necessarily You're speaking towards to patterns. So when you ask who I was talking to, first of all, I'm talking to decision makers and people who make decisions for other people, mm. you know, like they, like they're sitting in the room, they represent a group of people and either when they plan out their church schedule or they're in a delegates meeting or they are in an elders meeting, they are speaking consistently for other people mm. so that that's who i'm talking to that's who's in the room you know that, that's the ilc but what i'm speaking to is more probably more it's probably better to say that i'm speaking towards patterns that we're starting to see you know in in our churches and in three especially ministers especially ministers um and and three in particular um the first one has to do and we've already touched upon this a little bit is that a lack of transparency creates bad judgment in, in, in what ministers decide to focus on, what they decide to care about, and what they surround themselves with. And so when, when you guard your life, and, and again, this is a pattern that I see, ministers who's, you know, we've had so many ministers that have been suddenly fired or that have suddenly quit, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, Paul David Tripp wrote a book called The Dangerous Calling, where he diagnoses this. And he says, what, what, he goes, what I'm seeing, and he's like, he's a counselor to ministers. He goes, what I'm seeing is that uh, you have ministers that are marginalizing the people that they need to be transparent with. And over time, either those people get so sick of that, that they fire the minister, or the minister is undergoing such pressure from trying to keep up appearances that they, that they, that they quit. Wow. You know, so they're, they're either suddenly fired or quit. And I, there is a pattern of that that I have seen in our American churches for certain, you know, I'm not going to name places or names. It's not fair. Um, But so that I'm, I'm speaking to that pattern, this, this not being transparent and how it affects our judgment. It it affects what we decide to focus on in the church. It just, it, Mm -hmm. it, it, it often determines what we start caring about. And and so all of that. So I'm speaking to that pattern in the sermon, you know, in, in, for number one, number two, is we're having we're having a, a an almost narrative about the youth that we ha- we are leaving the youth behind in our in our church, and I'm going to say number one I I categorically disagree with that. As someone that has been working with the campus ministry for the last 25 years, we are not doing a bad job converting the youth. the The youth are as interested in Jesus. And in the big questions of life, as they were when I was a campus student, I'm not I'm not seeing a decline in interest in these in these issues. You know, furthermore, if our conversions are going down in the last couple of years, it's 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 an aberration based on COVID, in my opinion. You know, but up until that point, our conversions are 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 fairly strong. We'll say there's always things that we could be doing better. I think what we're struggling with is that we're losing our kingdom kids which is a much different problem than us not being able to win the youth over in, in the world. And the fact that we're losing our kingdom kids is, is a genuine problem. It's Mm -hmm. one that we have to figure out, but it's not the same thing as like we're, we're losing the youth in this world. But those two, those two things are being conflated. The idea that we can't figure out how to hold on to our kingdom kids and converting people out of the world. It's not the same problem and it's not the same issue. Mm -hmm. But when they get conflated, we start pivoting all of our attention towards kind of a more of an insular diagnosis of how we should do church. And we start we stop we stop focusing on the mission. Right. And in some cases, the mission is maybe the 
the cough syrup that we need for some of these problems. I'm not saying mm -hmm. for all of them at, at, at all. Right. But but you have you have people, especially decision makers who own whose own kids are not doing well. And they have these are people who have who have bled and who have sweat for this church and, and pro, who may have even thought that after doing that, it would mean that their own children would would pick up the torch after them. And they're not. And I, that that is a dizzying painful, wretched, horrible thing to have to go through. Um, but it doesn't mean that everything that we're doing with the youth is wrong, you know, but it's sometimes get, I'm seeing a pattern of things getting painted that way. And so I was diagnosing that. And then, and then the last thing has to do with, you know, what we're allowing our minds and our thinking to be affected by in the media world. Mm -hmm. And, 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 the fact that there's too many ministers that are are downplaying, like with their own with their own church, they will say, you know, you have to guard your hearts and your minds from the the impact of uh, of talking heads, the news, social media, entertainment, all of that. But then I, I'm seeing a pattern of us getting caught up in the world. Like it, it, it can almost seem like Jesus is a pat answer mm. to the solutions of the world, and we're getting so caught up with. Uh, with, with ideologies and philosophies of, of of how to fix our own church, which just seems crazy to me, but it's also to me representative of the fact that that people are surrounding themselves by non spiritual uh, ideologues that are that, that are impacting their own decision making and their own focus for what for what they're doing with churches. So you those you, are those were the three things I was primarily addressing. That's great. That really clarifies things for me. You mentioned an illustration from the Boston Marathon bombing. Yes. Can you recap that? Yeah. So there was a study that was being done. I don't know how long it was being done, but it was coming to a conclusion in 2013. And basically they were they were studying uh overall mental health and what creates poor mental health and what are some of the trends and patterns in that right as they were about to bring this study to publication the boston bombing happened now this this i don't i don't i forget it might have been under brown i i don't quote me. i can't remember which university this study was coming out of it might have been a consortium of them but um they paused the publication because this was this this bombing was taking place in their own backyard and this was uh an opportunity to see how a traumatic event affects mental health. And so they went back and re-interviewed all the people that they had interviewed for their study to find out how the bombing had affected those people. Some of those people were intimately connected to others that had been a part of the bombing. Some of them were in the race themselves or, or near the bombing. And so they were trying to figure out how could we help people who are closely related to a traumatic event in the future. But something stood out to them in the midst of it is that there was another group that was most deeply affected, more deeply affected even than the people who are intimately connected to the bombing. And they were trying to figure out why this particular group was more affected. And it had to do with the fact that this was a group of people that were watching six hours or more of social media about the event. Mm -hmm. And so while they were, while they were pretty far removed from the event itself, the fact that they were intimately connected to social media was creating a trauma type level mm. impact on their own mental health. Right, and right. so that's what the study was basically. Uh, I, I thought that was really powerful. And then you, you tied it together and you said, listen, some of us are really, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, basically yeah. addicted to social media, but then you come into staff meeting or leadership meeting and say, I, I'm an unbiased observer and here's my yeah. thoughts. 
without yes. acknowledging the fact that you've been swimming in, in secular opinions and, and hearsay. I thought that was very, very insightful. What, what's your prescription for our churches going forward? I mean, these, these, are, these are big issues. I, I, we don't have time to cover all of it, but I just I thought it was super insightful. I mean, s- stuff that I've experienced, you know, pressure from parents whose kids are not doing well to change my entire ministry philosophy or basically, you know, radically change my philosophy of ministry to suit their kids. I mean, it's just, I'm just like, going, kind of, so when you spoke that, I'm like, whoa, okay. It just helped me because I thought, okay, it's, I'm not the only one who's, who's experiencing this. And I'm sure that there are other leaders and ministers that are, are facing these kind of challenges. I can speak for myself when, when our own son went through, you know, his own spiritual crisis. And I spoke to this in the, in that sermon is that was a moment where we had to allow others to help us in our thinking. Mm-hmm. We had to be transparent about mm-hmm. what was motivating us. Mm-hmm. We had to be honest about what we wanted to do as a result of all this. And we had to allow other people to mold and move our train of thought. Um, and so the, the prescription to me is that we, we've got to be a church that lives in the light again, that, 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 that is transparent about what's going on in life, where we trust each other enough to bring the truth to one another. Um, and especially the ministry. I think if the ministry can model this, we have so many, we have so many ministers now. And, and if, and if there could be a model of ministers who are living in the light, totally transparent, the good and the bad, we don't live in a church anymore that, that necessarily holds the staff to have to live on this pedestal anymore. I think we have a membership that's extremely right. forgiving of right. its staff and actually desires that type of you know, realness and authenticity. I think, I think if we can model that and yes, you know what, there are consequences to it. You you may lose out on opportunities. Mm. You know, you, you may not, you may not carry the same reputation that you did. And those are the consequences of the ups and downs of, of, of life. But to pretend that that's not real is, 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 is stupid to me. So to me, the prescription is, is, is transparency, is is openness, allowing people real discipleship again. Right. And you know, Chris, the, the thing that I loved about the lesson is I love the illustration that you started it off with. You talked about your one of your boys getting bullied by a kid, and you were nearby peeking in and seeing the scene, and then you saw a little fist coming out of nowhere, and it was your other son uh, laying a jab on this kid who was bullying your other son, and I just thought such a, a touching illustration. But you expanded that and say, listen, we've always fought for each other. And we need to continue to fight for each other. And I agree. I just, there's nothing I could agree on more is we have to stop tearing each other down and, and, and tearing each other down for the sake of our kids who are not doing well spiritually or for whatever reason. And just saying, you know, we have to speak well of each other. We have to defend other leaders, other churches. And I just, I I was just like, amen to that. I go that. It, it addressed an issue that's going on that we've always been strong on is a, is a universal culture that's loving, kind, supportive, that we have a lot of common bonds. But yep. if we tear each other down for the sake of our own weaknesses or yep. uh, family issues, it's, we're just going to tear down this house that God has built. Absolutely. So I thought that was very, very powerful. Great lesson. Any comments you want to throw in there, Megan, on this? <laughs> I've always got comments, but no, I thought he did a great job yeah. too of just um, bringing up. So no, I won't comment because 
I'm not good at being succinct. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was helpful. It was very helpful. What advice would you guys give to a person who wants to make this life count? They look and they go, okay, this is, this is cool. Zillman's are making a difference. Uh, you guys are 45 or so, right? Mid forties. How can a person get there? That's a big question. I, I, I can give I can give like a sliver of, sure. of an answer that's sure. made a difference for me personally. And you know, I when I had so many ambitions coming into the church before I was in the church, and all of that, all of that has is a is a huge part of growing up. It's having these these huge dreams and these and these huge ambitions to do big things and to but in the background of that is this desire for renown. You know, to th th there is glory sure. in, in that, and right. there. So, and I think people are motivated oftentimes by a desire for comfort, a desire for glory, a desire for power, and and that 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 somewhat motivates a lot of the things that we that we disguise those things and sometimes spiritual ambitions or you know altruistic ambitions. And I'm not saying that that's that's evil. I think that's a part of growing up, right? Um, but I can remember when my kids got old enough to start having their own desires and stuff, it's almost like all the internal ambition I once had just got turned off. Mm. Like I just didn't care anymore. I wanted a life for my kids, mm. you know? And, and it, 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 it occurred to me that everything that I was going to enjoy with life was going to have to do with connection mm. that I want. I want to have connect. I want to have connection to my kids. I want to have a connection to my God I want there to be healthy connection between me and the community or that, that surrounds me. And, and that was going to be a fulfilling life, a life without regret was having these, these meaningful, honest, authentic connections to the people around me while living a life of passion for God, not apologizing for it, but somehow still in the midst of a dark world, having these meaningful bonds to everyone around me. And, and I think, again, that, that comes through transparency, not trying to be something you're not learning to be comfortable in your own skin mm -hmm. and loving the people around you. Like we've got so many great people in this church that will walk through fire for us. Mm -hmm. And that has to be privileged and valued above mm -hmm. all these other kind of superfluous, right, right. you know, career ambitions right. or, you know, church ambitions, yeah, church ambitions. Right. And so, I don't know. That's my answer for me. That's been the key for me. I think I agree and, and would align myself a lot with that. I think the thing that I would add is just this, and this is simple. That's what I think. Christianity is honestly very simple. It's hard, but it's simple. So just fixing our eyes on Jesus, that that's, that that's the answer that, that he is the answer. I think it's messy. This is so much messier than I thought it was going to be. When I said Jesus is Lord at 18 years old, this is way messier than I thought. The church is way messier. My family is way messier. I am way messier than I ever thought it was going to be. But that is, that's it. Like Jesus is okay with mm -hmm. that. He comes into our mess with us and he grabs us by the hand and he's like, yeah, this is life. This is why, this is why I'm doing it. But he's so, he's so long suffering. And I think fighting, wrestling, doing everything I can to hold on to that. Mm -hmm. There's a, um, Eugene Peterson has a book called a, a long obedience in the same direction. Mm. I love that phrase. That's what this life is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And if I can just, again, keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And like Chris said, 
understand this really is about connection. This is the point. <laughs> this is the goal is, 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 is these connections. It's, it's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. You're going to want to give up, but don't. Right. One time Bethany Jones said to me, Bethany Smith said to me, um, as a young Christian, she's like, Megan, God doesn't want you to be perfect. He wants you to be faithful. Mm. And it was a game changer for me because I cannot be perfect, but I can be faithful. Mm. I can keep fighting even if when I don't want to, even if the fight is ugly and I'm mad and at, you know, God at the people around me, I can keep fighting. So right. that's kind of how I think through, it's going to be messy. That's awesome. Okay with it. I, I love what you're saying there about like, I think we, we start off with personal ambition, desire for glory, fame. I mean, it, it, there's, you know, that's the, the study of humanity. And, and <laughs> I, I just read this quote from, um, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, he was a leader of the Moravian movement, like early missionaries wow. inspired John Wesley. And he was born wealthy, but he, he gave all that up to preach to the Indians and send missionaries all over the place. And this is one of his quotes, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. <laughs> so good. Yes. Preach That's the gospel, so die and be forgotten. And, yep. you know, I just... I had to write that. I got my on my three by five card so here. Good. That is great because it's so challenging to my pride. I mean, I just that's go so that. That's so hard. I just I. This is an aspiration, you know. Yes. I like to preach the gospel, but to be forgotten, I just go. That's tough on my flesh. Yeah. I go no, you know. But I love his attitude. But what do you know? This guy's not forgotten. You know, we're still talking no, about so him. True. So there's uh, a Henry Nowen quote. He says in a book called In His Name. I think it's called. He says. That the Christian leader for the the twenty first century needs to be willing to be irrelevant. That oof. I know it's really tough, very very tough, especially for people that um, like to be up in front, leading that kind of yeah, stuff. Totally. So super challenging. But thank you so much for your time, you guys, and I really appreciate your candidness and sharing your lives. You you're, you're such great examples in so many different areas, and it's it's a pleasure personally to get to know you a little bit better because our paths really haven't crossed much, and so. I appreciate you making the time and sharing your life. And I just want to wish you all the best there in that great church in Denver. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. We appreciate it. And you in it. Tucson. Yes, you in Tucson. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.